Hello and welcome to the Dot Ball Cricket Podcast. This is the podcast from South Africa dealing with uh, South African cricket, uh, both the Proteas and the domestic game. Very pleased to have John Kent, former Proteas all-rounder and uh, super sport commentator with me. Hello, John. How are you doing? Fresh from a, a long stint in, uh, at St. George's Park for the uh, CSA T20 Challenge. All's good, Ken. Thanks very much. Yeah, good to have you see you guys again and be involved in your roundup. Um, yeah, it's been a yeah an interesting time in PE. I think the comp- competition went pretty well. Um, a new winner, first time winner for the for the Rocks. So obviously very positive on that sense. Um, and then you yeah, are very pleased with how the the Proteas have just fought back so well in their second test. Yeah, let's start with the Proteas because uh, that was again a quite remarkable series, uh, following on from the comeback win over India, uh, getting absolutely slaughtered in the first test uh, by the reigning World Test champions uh, in Christchurch at the Hagley Oval, where. New Zealand have an incredible record. They've won eight of their last 10 tests uh, or eight of the 10 tests played at the Hagley Oval. And then just another amazing comeback in in the second test uh, to win by 198 runs uh, with a fantastic all-round performance. John, just uh, looking at that first test, um, quite baffling really how, how a team which had just played so well against India, confidence should be high. Uh, goes and plays so badly. And, and I wanted to ask you, you've been to Australia, which is uh, still a couple of hours west of New Zealand, so not quite as bad. But do you think jet lag may be a factor in that in that first test and, and obviously quarantine as well? Yeah, I think they sort of gave us a, a slightly easier quarantining period. I think they try to help us out to help them out as well to get the games going. Um, but I think the, yeah, the jet lag is... The major problem we had in that first test, and and I know I've chatted to a lot of people in the last couple of weeks now about the time it takes for you to to you know get over that jet lag and, and perform in games, etc. So I did hear that you know saying in that first test when it happened after our quarantine time is you know we only we only should have really played a warm up game in in that sort of time frame. And we only would have been playing, should have played our first real competitive game when we've played the second test. So we've seen how we just weren't at the races in that first test. And I know, you know, we're not going to pass judgment on performances there. I think that'd probably be really harsh on on our on our great test team. But they showed once they spent some time there, they've got themselves acclimatized, so to speak. Um, we've really given New Zealand a good good hiding. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. Uh, let's. Uh... Let's not talk about the first test anymore. There wasn't much to really discuss uh, performance-wise. Credit to New Zealand. They were they were really, really good. Um, but uh, the Proteas were really uh, quite terrible. We, we go to the second test, John, and uh, I think what really struck me about that game was that the visiting side read the conditions so much better than the home team. Um, I start with Dean Elgar at the toss. Uh, extremely brave decision to bat first. And the fact also that they got their team selection spot on uh, choosing Keshav Maharaj. Yeah, I think that wicket um, for the second test was a lot slower. It certainly wasn't as, as KG mentioned in his in his interviews. There was a lot more zip, a lot more pace, and a lot more movement in that first test. So, you know, like a lot of times, captains in test matches, they... 
they they always think maybe have a bowl first and then rather have just stick to stick to batting first, get first use of the wicket, um, which we did well. SJ brilliant, and then obviously Varane in the second innings, he he showed what you know what quality he has. Um, yeah, and I think it's yeah a lot of people sort of look at the conditions and they always think of bowling first. But if you if you don't take wickets in that first session as a bowling team, you really are sort of chasing the game after that. So at least we've got a decent first inning score, which we haven't done for quite some time. Um, and that obviously stood us in good stead uh, for the rest of the game. John, I, I mean, the, the Hagdy Oval reminds me a little bit of Kingsmead uh, back in your playing days, uh, the Green Mamba. Um, I, I'm sure that there were times when you had to go out and bat on a, on a pretty green what a pretty green pitch at Kingsley. But were you ever sent in by your own captain uh, and the rest of the team was going, oh, hang on, <laughs> shouldn't we be bowling? Yeah, I think a lot of the time back in those days when they had the lawn was, uh, they, they, they said just we'll, we'll, we'll guts it out a little bit. We, we used to facing the ball moving around quite a bit. Um, leave well, just be clever in how you go about it. And then we out-bowl them as a bowling side. Um, at that stage, we had like a Klusner, Tweedy, uh, Nixon, McLean, those sort of guys. So we just said we we're going to outbowl the opposition and, and make sure we bat well in the first innings. Um, that I think that was the key. But just talking about obviously that first test, second test um, sort of difference, uh, you saw a lot of guys leaving a lot better, especially like a guy like a Carl Verena, where in, in domestic cricket and you know all. Of He's played before this. He's sort of just not much foot movement, and the hands just get through the ball, hitting him, hit the ball through the offside. And I think this this innings we you know we haven't seen a lot of is him leaving a ball. So I think that's the sort of improvement and you know know how from from the player himself to to change his game and adjust to conditions. And I'm just really pleased and proud of how quickly they. They learned their lessons from the first test, basically, and put it into effect straight away. Indeed. It was interesting to hear Carl Varane uh, say after his uh, wonderful 100 that uh, footwork has never been a, a particularly big part of his game. Um, he's not too fussed about it. Uh, contact points uh, are what he really concentrates on. Uh, but I, I think your point is still valid because the point is that they were a lot more circumspect in terms of not playing outside or stump, they played a lot straighter, I thought. And especially a guy like Sorrel Avia, playing in just his second test match, uh, opening the batting on that first morning, absolutely crucial time. Um, and I thought he batted superbly well. He, he's obviously a guy from from your neck of the woods, John, uh, the KZN Dolphins. Um, you've obviously seen a lot of him. You, you've obviously dealt with him a lot. Uh, I'm sure you weren't overly surprised that Avia did so well, considering that he's a very mature cricketer who's who's been through quite a lot in his career. Yeah, I think you did on with that, with uh, regarding like test cricket and what it takes to succeed at this level. And he's shown through all the levels that he's come through at, at KZN Inland for five seasons. Uh, then he joined the Dolphins um, and, and dominated there in all the formats as he's done throughout. Um, and... Yeah, you know, he's, he's 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 a grounded person, and you know whether he's doing great or, or, or struggling, you wouldn't really know the difference. And I, I like that sort of level-headedness amongst some of the players. Obviously, sometimes <laughs> some sort of performances go to guys' heads, and that's a little bit worrying. But 
obviously the the level headedness is the key element, um, and I think even his his fifty over cricket is maybe even his best uh, format of the game. Um, over the years, he's been a really important part of that opening stand for the Dolphins um, in all sort of formats. So, you know, he's reached that point where he knows his game and he understands it, and that's what you like to see. Um, obviously, some guys, the, the selectors take a punt on when they're really young, um, and they don't quite, you know, match up to that those high hopes. Um, and sometimes they got to go back to domestic cricket and and go and learn their game and, and hone their skills. Um, and come back better cricketers. I think that's not always a bad thing. Um, I think obviously some guys get, you know, when they're a freak of nature, you know, those guys will get their opportunities. But you see the better players like a, like a Cook or a Keegan Peterson and now SJ, Avia, that they sort of experience players. And it's not really a surprise when they do well at this level now. Yeah, absolutely. The The, the value of having been through many challenges and, I guess knowing how to adapt and, and knowing how to get out of uh, poor runs of form, that sort of thing. Um, there were some eyebrows raised as well that uh, South Africa, after barely making 200 runs between their two innings in the first test, actually left out a batsman <laughs> for the second test. Um, it obviously worked out, and, and I think one of the really valuable things about the, the, the showing in the second test was we saw in the first innings that really crucial partnership between Marco Janssen and Keshav Maharaj, uh, Kahisa Rabada with a sensational innings in the second innings, which really created time for South Africa because he, he scored so quickly. Uh, and I thought even Luto Sapamla actually looked uh, vaguely decent with the bat at number 11 as well. So, John, just how vital was it that the lower order chipped in with some important runs as well? Yeah, I, th- I think like Rabada getting runs... If it's called confidence, it's it's amazing what package he can bring, taking all his wickets that he does, and then offering that sort of free-flowing stroke play. It's brilliant. I think you know, Maharaj, is, he doesn't get in line with the ball at all, to be honest. But what he does is he backs away and he creates scoring opportunities. He's maybe not the bravest, but he, he plays his shots. And that's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and that's the best way for him to get runs. He's might not tough it out and duck and get hit and etc. Not not too many guys are keen on that sort of stuff. But you know, if he can score some runs in a positive way, um, you know, all the all the better for our team. Um yeah, it's very important that those guys contribute down the order if we have a maybe a little middle order wobble from time to time. But um yeah, I think yeah, in terms of selection, like you're saying, choosing one less batsman. It's just a case of sometimes teams select an extra batsman to cover cover some bases, but the truth is we need the top six score runs. I think that like we've got to face that sort of fact, I think, in, in all formats, the 2020s or the, or the 50 over stuff. We can't be asking the number eight and nine to come in and hit the winning runs. You know, the top six have got to do the business. Absolutely. And uh, I guess we should add in there Vian Mulder, who uh, on the fourth morning uh, also played a, a really crucial hand with Kyle Varane uh, in batting through the first hour. Uh, because if New Zealand had broke through then, uh, it could have been a very different test match. And uh, Keshav Maharaj, his, his problems against the short ball uh, have been well documented. But I guess at least he's taking it on now. He's not just, uh, you know, trying to get away, out the way. Um, he doesn't like the short ball. Not not many people do. Uh, but at least he's taking it on and, and getting some runs uh, in that area. Uh John, you mentioned the Dolphins back in the day feeling that they could out-bowl 
uh, teams in, in pace-friendly, consumer-friendly conditions. Uh, what did you think of the South African bowling? Um, and uh, Kakiso Rabada, just wonderful to see him really leading the attack um, in such fine fashion. Yeah, it's uh, nothing better than watching that man in action. I think his his pace also. I always look at the sort of pace the guys are bowling at, also on you know at home conditions, away conditions, and see how they shaping up. I think uh, you know KG is always around the 140 mark, uh, and when he wants to click, he can turn it up a bit more. Um, I thought uh, Sapamne in that sort of mid 120s. I was hoping he could get up into the sort of mid 130s, to be honest. Um, and then obviously Mulder, sort of 125 around there, that sort of mark. But yeah, you never know how they're feeling. Maybe they might have a little niggle. Um, but obviously, you know, getting the ball through at a fair fair rate always helps in, in test cricket. Otherwise, guys can just sort of wear you down. Um, and I watched that wake up and, and smell the cricket a couple of mornings ago, uh, just wrapping up the, the, the cricket there. And they're saying, what is the, what is a Mulder? What, what is the Pumna's job? Do they hold... Um, in, in domestic cricket, they're normally the strike bowlers, so they, they're quite attacking. Um, but obviously in this format, we need sort of economy as well as the odd wicket from, from those guys. So I suppose it's just the role um, and how they use them. Um, but, uh, but I think uh, Janssen is just going from strength to strength um, in his role. Obviously, I think a, a huge omission is obviously Anik Nokia. I think we really do miss him. Um, but yeah, obviously we've done pretty well results-wise without him of late. But um, obviously in Gidi, I'm a little bit concerned with his his fitness and obviously lack of cricket, etc. We we need to see him back um, on the park and firing again. Yeah, I, I thought Luto Sapamla and uh, Vian Morda did a really good job uh, with the ball, just uh, holding up their ends when required, nice and accurate, uh, especially in that second innings. And, uh, of course, Luto Sapamla getting the, the crucial wicket of Devon Conway, LBW, with a fantastic Yorker uh, when he had 92. But uh, I agree, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if Sapamla, who I think had his best in that game, touched sort of 130 k's an hour, if he could regularly get into the mid-130s uh, with the accuracy he showed and the skill, um, he could really be a, a, a world-class bowler. Um, we need to mention Marco Janssen, uh, another seven wickets uh, in this test match. So he's now taken 28 wickets uh, in his first five test matches. So what a wonderful start uh, to his test career he's had. Let's move on now to the statistical highlights uh, of this remarkable series in New Zealand. And as ever, we have Andrew Sampson, our statistical guru, with all those details for us. Yes, a disappointing start to the series in New Zealand for South Africa. Um, a proper thrashing by an innings and 276 runs, which is the 12th biggest victory margin by an innings all time in Test cricket. And South Africa have only ever suffered one worse loss, and that was in the Test match at the Wanderers in 2002, uh, where they lost by an innings and 360 runs to Australia. People will remember Adam Gilchrist making a double hundred in that game. And in that first Test South Africa had two new debutants. Well, all debutants are new, but two debutants, Sorrel Evia and Clinton Stearman, who both um, obviously deserved the opportunity to come up. Evia going on to score 100 in the second test. But Evia's 32 years old and Stearman's 29. And it's been a continuation of what I think is a little bit of a worrying trend. 
And we're now of the last 11 debutants in Test cricket for South Africa, going back to the Boxing Day Test against England in 2019. Five of those 11 over the age of 30 and two more over the age of 29. You kind of got to wonder if there aren't a few younger options available who may be a better long-term prospect than some of those that have been chosen by South Africa. But in the second test, a tremendous comeback for South Africa, winning the test easily um, by 198 runs, which was a massive turnaround, obviously. Um, so one of the things that you look for in a kind of turnaround like that is what is the what, – what, what, how, how do you quantify that turnaround? And basically, of the teams that have lost the test match by an innings and 200 runs or 200 or more runs, there are 53 of those teams – and only 10 of them went on to win the next test. The most impressive turnaround, purely statistically, is Australia in 1938. Uh, the biggest loss in the history of test cricket. England made 903 for seven at the Oval. Len Hutton famously making 364 at the time, the highest test score. And they went on to beat Australia by an innings in 579, with uh, Australia having both Don Bradman and Jack Fingleton not batting in either innings due to injuries that they picked up. Not terribly surprisingly, fielding a total of 903 for seven. Their next test match, they won by an innings and 103 runs. Uh, that was against New Zealand in Sri Lanka. In Sri Lanka. That was against New Zealand in Wellington in 1946, uh, which, of course, is nearly eight years later. So it probably doesn't really count as a turnaround. So what you're looking for um, is not so much what a team did in its next test, having been thrashed by an innings and 200 runs, but what they did. But if they did that in the same series. And it's only the fourth time that a team has won a test match after in the next test match in the same series, having lost by an innings and 200 runs in the previous test match. In 1998, Australia did it in India, losing by 219 innings and 219 runs in Calcutta, and then winning the next test by eight wickets. Uh, India then did it to Sri Lanka in, nine, in 2008, losing by an innings and 239 runs, and winning the next one by 170 runs. And the most recent one was in uh, England in 2017 when the West Indies got beaten in a day-night test at Birmingham by an innings and 209 runs and then went on to a famous victory in the following test at Leeds, chasing 322 to win by five wickets. So South Africa joins that little list of four teams. And, of course, the 276-run margin is higher than any of the other uh, three, test, three series that I mentioned there. So a really extraordinary turnaround. Uh, of, of course, um, a one-all series result in two tests uh, leaves a lot of people, including me, of course, asking why there isn't a third test. Um, and sadly, the reality is most test series these days are two tests, which is quite frankly ridiculous. Um, but the last time there was a three-test series not involving any of the big three, England, Australia or India, was 2019. It's three years ago when uh, Pakistan were in South Africa. And I think it's wishful thinking, unfortunately, that we're going to see any more three-test series not involving any of the big three. Thanks very much, Andrew. Fascinating stuff as ever. And uh, just to echo, John, what you said about uh, we've, we've got the Bangladesh series coming up uh, in a bit less than a month's time. And to the South African team, obviously, we have to add Keegan Peterson on the batting side. But I'm very excited that if Anrik Nokia and Lungi Ngidi are fit, um, that really gives you a hell of a t hell of a, an attack. Uh, Rabada Janssen, uh, Ngidi Nokia Maharaj. 
uh, that's something to look forward to, isn't it? Yeah, I think the I think that um, the RPL might be involved somewhere along the way. Whether you know our guys missed or guys missed one test, but you're looking at an Rabada, Ngidi, Janssen, um, obviously Funder Dussen, Amakram. You know, we we're missing big big numbers in that in that test team if they do go and when they go. Um, because they, they, they're likely to leave at some point. So we just need to sort of, I guess, follow that uh, progress from the from CSA to see how many games these guys are going to play. But, yeah, obviously they're important. And what we might see is a, a, a even more new faces, um, possibly for the second test, um, which is around sort of the 10th of April, around that sort of period. Um, and obviously the IPL starts. So, yeah, we're just going to have to follow that progress and see where... CSA leads us. Yeah, the last I heard on that, and uh, certainly Dean Elgar's expectation uh, is that everyone needs to be available until the end of the series. Uh, whether that does actually happen, of course, uh, is another another matter. But I, I don't think we should underestimate uh, this series against Bangladesh. Um, we're playing at the two coastal ve- venues, Kingsmead and St. George's Park. It's the exact same itinerary is when Sri Lanka shocked uh, South Africa a few years back, winning 2-0. Coastal conditions, the most favourable for subcontinental teams in the country. And Bangladesh beat New Zealand in in the first test uh, in New Zealand not that long ago. So uh, I really hope that we're not going to underestimate them. And, uh, of course, 2-0 should be the aim to get valuable World Test Championship points. Yeah, we we have to try and take them down. And, and whitewash them here, but um, I think the, you know, the the Port Elizabeth Gubacha uh, groundsman Adrian Carter did an amazing job in that T20 series. I thought, um, obviously towards the end, I'd obviously started getting a bit more tired, but he's got obviously four momentum games, or I should say, one day cup games, and uh, and obviously then it's the Test match, so he's going to have to really try and manage that well and. You know, keep plenty of grass on the wicket here and try to get a bit of pace in it. Uh, Durban, um, you know, I've been a little bit worried for this for the Durban Kingsmead pitch for quite some time now. Um, there's just no pace in it. Uh, you know, nothing in for the seamers, really slow. Um, yeah, so that's a bit of a concern. Um, and hopefully uh, Wilson Gobezi can sort that out at Kingsmead to make sure there's pace, there's bounce, there's grass on the wicket. Um, to suit our style of play. Absolutely, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the St. George's Park pitch and um, because I think it's a good time to go across to the CSA T20 Challenge now. Um, when when uh, St. George's Park was announced as the venue for the entire T20 competition, I, I was a bit concerned because the pitch uh, so far in the summer had actually been not that good for batting. Um, and you don't really want to have a, a T20 competition where the ball dominates the bat to a great extent. But I, I think the pitches were fantastic. I, I thought there was a nice range um, of conditions. Uh, the spinners came into it a lot. But there was enough there for the seamers, and there were some very good batting displays as well. John Kent, you were an integral part of the uh, excellent Supersport coverage of that entire tournament uh, in Kabacha, Port Elizabeth. Uh, what were the main takeaways, the main highlights of the CSA T20 Challenge for you? I'd say it was uh, obviously the emergence of some players that had, had formerly been sort of boxed in certain formats. 
Um, the, the Peter Milan, obviously being the standout top run scorer, captain of the of the Rocks. Um, you know, they, after two games, they were bottom of the table, um, and they had a, a super over, which they managed to just beat the, the Northwest Dragons. And for after that, they really sort of started finding some form. Uh, their spinners were excellent. Um, obviously, other highlights would be like the Stubbs from from Warriors, who. You know, surely it must be in the picture, you know, for Victor and Pitsang to start considering for the national side. His strike rate was over 200. Um, you know, he was, he was sort of playing on a, on a different level for this tournament, to be honest. Uh, the likes of Miller uh, showed some moments of brilliance. Uh, and as well, Shamsi, towards the end of the tournament, he really stepped up. Um, but some of the teams were a little bit exposed. Uh, for example, like the, the Warriors bowling attack really got, got picked off. Their batting... Um, side is really impressive. They played a really good brand of cricket throughout and they were at the forefront of it. Um, the Lions had a diff- uh, difficult campaign. Um, a couple of slightly inexperienced guys in that middle order uh, with the loss of some of their national players obviously counted against them. Um, but the Titans looked really sort of poised to win the tournament. Um, in the early stages, they really started finding some form. Um, but yeah, obviously... Yeah, they just fell at the last hurdle there, to be honest. Yeah, I'm, I'm pleased to say that uh, in my previews of the tournament, I did pick uh, the Bollant Rocks as, as one of the teams to watch, uh, mostly because their the, the bowling attack, I think, just covers uh, so many bases. Obviously, Peter Malone had a wonderful tournament uh, up front, uh, and, I, and I think when, when you do get slightly lower-scoring T20 games, um, that sort of batsman is, is invaluable. But if you look at their attack, I mean, they, they had a hardest for Lyon, um able to take wickets uh, when required, when they really, really needed wickets. Um, Farisco Adams, so good at the death, so skillful. Uh, and then wonderful spinners, uh, Siobonga Mahima, Imran Manak, uh, Sh- uh, Sean von Berg, uh, just had a wonderful tournament as well. So uh, I wasn't overly surprised uh, to see them doing so well. Yeah, they they really put it together. Um, they had a real good like sort of team vibe going on. Uh, I think a lot of the teams in that in this competition were struggling to find the right combinations. I think at times, um, obviously the Dolphins had Pekla Quayo to bat at three. Um, Imran Khan obviously tried that out; it didn't really work. Um, and then they obviously went back to him at sort of six seven, and then they tried at a swat up in the top order, which didn't work either. So they were a little bit. So they never really settled on a on, on a on a lineup um, they could back, um, and that sort of cost them in the end. Uh, obviously, the Knights also had a poor series. They their their, their lineup wasn't quite suited, as you say, um, to those conditions in terms of spinners. Um, you know, they had some a left-arm orthodox spinner, Michael Aquana, which they didn't really bowl much, um, and then they just had some part-time spinners otherwise. So I think that's where they struggled. Um, I think that most of the sides you really got through obviously to that final had the, the best balanced sides uh, in the competition which is which is how it should work yeah uh, John you mentioned uh, Tristan Stubbs um, it, you know every once in a while a guy will just be a real shooting star um, at domestic level uh, really capture the public's imagination uh, you know he, he batted really well I think the end of last season batted really well in the in the T20 knockout at the start of this summer um, but his form uh, in this recent tournament was just incredible. And um, by no means am I suggesting that David Miller 
should be phased out of the Proteus team. He's only 32, so uh, there's still a lot of time left uh, for, for David Miller to contribute to the Proteus. But I would like to see Stubbs brought into the Proteus team uh, almost as an understudy to David Miller, as his kind of to groom Stubbs that uh, one day he could take over uh, from David Miller and, and be as effective as Miller has been and and even maybe look at a guy like Donovan Ferreira as well. Yeah, Donovan Ferreira, I missed out him earlier and he's also really, you know, for a guy who's not even contracted, he's shown a few guys up who are contracted around the country to what he's capable of. Um, obviously, Stubbs and him are the, probably the highest strike rates in the whole tournament along with Miller. Um, but yeah, I don't know, like, Talk about Stubbs as an understudy, you know, to Miller. You know, he's Stubbs is the main guy putting pressure on Miller and the Funder Dussons and the Markrams, and this is what we need. You know, look at guys now. You talk about even going back to the Test cricket quickly now with Kieran Peterson coming back. You know, where is Markram going to fit in? There's Funder Dusson, Vuma, Verena. You know, so one of those guys is going to miss out. Would it be Funder Dusson or, or Markram? You know, those sort of decisions are, are, are coming, and I think some of the players actually know that. Um, so it's going to be tricky times, I think, in terms of even the, the test batting lineup now. Uh, maybe the RPL might put that to bed, but yeah, there's, there's, there's good pressure coming onto the guys at the top. Quite right, and uh, I think it is going to be either Aidan Markram or Rassi van der Dussen who is going to have to make way for <laughs> Keegan Peterson uh, in the test side. Uh, just uh, wrapping up what is coming ahead, we mentioned the Bangladesh series uh, that the Proteas will be involved in. Uh, three ODIs, uh, followed by two test matches. Uh, the ODIs starting on the 18th of March at Centurion. Uh, they then go to the Wanderers on two days later, the 20th of March, uh, and then ending that series at Centurion Wednesday, 23rd of March. Uh, and then the two tests, March 30th to uh, April 3rd, uh, I actually think it's March 30th, 31st to April 4th, um, quick and first dates are wrong as far as I know, uh, at Kingsmead and then uh, April 8th to 12th uh, in Port Elizabeth. We do have some big domestic cricket uh, coming up in the coming days and uh, that's the final game of the four-day franchise series. Uh, and it's coming to a very exciting conclusion uh, because the Central Gauteng Lions are currently top of the log on 111.3 points. Uh, but at one stage of the season, they were absolutely running away with the competition. But two sides have caught up, and that is the Eastern Province Warriors on 110.82, so they're uh, 0.48 points behind only. And uh, the Northern Titans on 105 points. And in the final round of fixtures, it's going to be the Northern Titans hosting the Central Gauteng Lions at Supersport Park. So obviously if the Northern Titans win that game, they will overtake the Lions. Uh, and then we have to look at what the Warriors do. And uh, they're travelling to Bloemfontein to play against the Free State Knights. So, John Kent, where's your money for the, uh, the end of the four-day franchise series? Who, who are we going to see emerge as champions? <laughs> Sure, it's a tough one. It's, uh, <laughs> I, I'm probably going. Uh, I'll probably back the Titans right now. Um, you got to say though that the, the the Warriors, you know, they've done a really great job. You know, their four-day cricket, they were they were you know bottom of the when there were six teams and they were struggling at times, um, but they really have made a wonderful effort under Robin Peterson. 
Uh, I think Rudy Second sort of takes over that team. Um, a really a great effort for them to to really be in the running towards the end. Um, Lions consistent, the Titans consistent again. Um, but I think the the Titans squad, you know, if you look at some players maybe unavailable now with a national team, etc. The the Titans probably look like the you know the, they've got the side to to do the job. I think. Yeah, I, I do know that the Lions are trying very hard. Uh, to get some of their Proteus players back, uh, understandably. They, they might have to deal with jet lag again. And uh, I believe the, the Titans are hoping to be able to field Simon Harmer, obviously the, the champion off spinner who was in Port Elizabeth, uh, in New Zealand at least. And uh, kudos to Robin Peterson, certainly doing a great job uh, with the Warriors. So that's all we have for you on this show this week. Uh, we'll be back shortly, I imagine, with uh, a wrap-up of that four-day franchise series, uh, just how that all uh, ended. And uh, also, we'll preview the Bangladesh series once we're a bit closer to that. John Kent, thanks so much for your time. Go well, and thank you, listeners. And uh, don't forget to subscribe and uh, like us. And if you like, if you want to communicate with us, you can as well. We are on Twitter at dot ball podcast or one word. Thanks very much for your time. We'll speak again soon.